Um, moving a little faster. I've been exercising. Keep continue to pray for me. <laughs> lift, lift our hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you so much for your presence today. We thank you for the word that we're about to receive in advance, God. We pray that it will enter our hearts and bring increase in our lives. Bless the pastor in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Claude. So we continue this week in our series, Amazing Adventures in the Story of God. Today, we are going to talk about the fiery furnaces. This is not a typo. Uh, uh, Many of you are familiar with the story of the fiery furnace. Today, we're going to actually talk about two fiery furnaces. Um, And uh, the good news is that before today, do we have a, I think we've got a little ring going there. Uh, Before today, last night, I trotted this sermon out on my four-year-old son, Jameson. Uh, It was about 1030 at night, and he couldn't sleep, and so he wanted me to tell him a story. So I said, okay, I'm going to tell you the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, And I want you to know that when I finished the story, he started bouncing on his bed and clapping his hands. So I don't know what response you plan to have at the end of the sermon, but uh, just know that, that there was a big one last night, okay? Uh, to set the stage for this story that we're going to talk about, the story that we're going to talk about today took place about 600 years before Christ. It took place in an area that is now uh, known as southern Iraq, about 50 miles south of Baghdad, in uh, a city that was called Babylon. And in fact, what's interesting is uh, the, the archaeologists began excavating uh, Babylon early in the 1800s. And have dug up a lot of interesting remains. The bricks in Babylon were nearly all stamped with the name of the king, Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, in about 1983, uh, Saddam Hussein wanted to try to rebuild Babylon and began rebuilding Babylon. And he would stamp the bricks with his name. And they, uh, the bricks there say, this was built by Saddam Hussein, son of Nebuchadnezzar, to glorify Iraq. Here's just to give you a, a visual. This is the old, this is, this is the new Babylon, or the, the beginning of the building of Babylon, uh, that was built upon the old ruins of Babylon. So just to kind of contextualize you in the story, where it's at, and, and, and you know, what it looks like. Um, that's kind of the region that you can imagine as I, as I describe the story. And what I'm going to do is, we're going to jump right into the first book of Daniel, and I'm going to read you the story known as the fiery furnace. Uh, I'm going to just read it out to you, and then we're going to explore it a little bit. So I didn't put it all up on the screen, so you can just kind of imagine this region, imagine this long, these long open plains with this huge city in the middle of them. Uh, that's where all of this took place. Okay, so we're going to dive right into Daniel chapter 1. And it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, now this is an important name to remember, Jehoiakim Jehoiakim was the king of Judah. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Judah was the southern region of Israel. Okay, so, so we've got Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So when Jehoiakim was king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of you know, Babylon, came and sieged, uh, besieged Jerusalem. And the scripture says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The Lord, you know, we've been talking about all of these moments in, in, the, in the history of Israel and the history of Judah. 
where God protected his people. In this instance, we see that God gave Jehoiakim, he gave Judah, into the hands of Israel's enemies, Babylon. And we're going to explore that a little bit more in a, in a minute. Then we jump down to Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, was the king of Babylon, made an image of gold whose height was 90 feet tall and about 9 feet in breadth. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So imagine this stretch of land and imagine a 90-foot-tall gold statue that's 9 feet wide, 90 feet tall, standing up in the middle of this plain. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they all stood before that image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed, he said, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a fiery furnace. We find extra biblical uh, references to the Babylonians using fiery furnaces to execute those who they deemed to be their enemies or those who were insurgents or those who were rebelling. And in this case, Nebuchadnezzar builds this massive statue, a statue and he tells everyone in the region, and, and Babylon, by the way, had taken over massive amounts of regions. So there were people from all different tribes and tongues that were all gathered together. And King Nebuchadnezzar said, I want you to come, and when you hear the music, you bow down and worship this image. Let me just stop just for a second and point this out. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians did not ever tell anyone that they couldn't worship their own God. He never said you cannot, he never said to the Israelites, you cannot worship the God of Israel. He only said you cannot worship the God of Israel exclusively. In other words, you can worship whoever you want, you can do whatever you want to do, so long as, in addition to that, you are willing to come and bow down to this image that I have erected that, that represents the magnificence of my kingdom. Uh, and I just think that that's interesting. He wasn't trying to quash other beliefs. He just wanted those beliefs to conform to his image of what those beliefs should be. Um, one other just real interesting point. The scripture doesn't tell us what this image is. A lot of people, you know, if you Google image uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue, uh, you'll see images of Nebuchadnezzar. But the scripture doesn't explicitly say that it was an image of him. It doesn't tell us what it was. It just says that it was. And there were a lot of places in the scripture where it could have. And I wonder why they didn't tell us. And, and, and one reason possibly might be that the scripture is trying to tell us that this image for you and me can be whatever that is that's in our life that's bigger than or takes the place of or is standing beside our worship of the one true God. Because for you it might be one thing, for me it might be something else. We all may be saying, look, I'm going to worship God, I'm willing to worship God, but I also have this other thing that I bow down to. Uh, Even though worshiping God requires that I not bow down to that, I'm going to do both. Anyway, just a little side note. Uh, therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound, they heard the music, they fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
At that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, they said, O king, live forever. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There they are. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they said, These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were one of thousands of Jews that were living in Jerusalem that when the Babylonians took over Jerusalem, they deported. They, they took the, the most well-educated, the noble, the elite, the you know, rich, the famous. They took them down to Babylon so that they could be acclimated to the views and the worldview of Babylon. They wanted to come down and conform them. In fact, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's not the names their moms gave them. They had Hebrew names. They were renamed that by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? So, they, so Nebuchadnezzar went and tried to take all of these Jews and bring them down into his region to retrain them and reassimilate them into Babylonian culture. Then Nebuchadnezzar, so, so these guys came and said, hey, by the way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not worshiping your image. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they were brought before these men, so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Apparently they didn't answer because he continued talking. He says, Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He challenges them. I'm going to give you another chance, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm going to, play, I'm going to have the guys play the music. And I want you to fall down and worship. And if you do, good. And if you don't, you're going into the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, this is interesting, if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Amazing, amazing response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their response was basically, we don't have to respond to you. Our God is going to save us. Oh, and by the way, if he doesn't, we're still not bowing down. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. That's the point in the story last night where Jameson started getting very excited because he knew that something was going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar, you know, threatening and we're not going to listen to you. Disobeying. Okay. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. In other words, the fire was so hot that the guys who in charge of taking them up to the fire were consumed by the fire. And they threw the three men into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. 
he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Somehow Nebuchadnezzar was able to look into the furnace and see that he had thrown three men in, but there appeared to be a fourth man walking in the fiery furnace with them. Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their own bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. Amen. We can just stop right there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego delivered from this fiery inferno in an intimate moment with this mysterious fourth man walking in the furnace with them. In this story, we have another, we've been going through this series of these amazing episodes of God's redemptive power, pulling his people out of problems, pulling them out of struggles, pulling them out of almost certain death. And like so many of these other stories, you may be asking, because I find myself asking, why in these stories does it get to this point anyway? Why does it get to the point where you've got the guys in the furnace before God delivers them? Why didn't God deliver them when, when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem way back, you know, 12 years earlier? Why didn't God deliver them then? Then you would have never had them going down to Babylon. Then you would have never had them going in the fiery furnace. You know, he wouldn't have had all this mess, right? And most of the stories, we end up saying, well, I'm not sure, okay? This story actually gives us the answer. And, I, and I've read these passages before many times. I have never noticed what I'm going to point out to you today. I've, I've never seen this. Uh, maybe, maybe it was glaringly obvious to everyone else, but I have never seen this. And, and what I'm going to tell you is that we have to go back to the very first sentence that I read you from Daniel one chapter one and it says in the reign of jehoiakim king of judah nebuchadnezzar king of babylon came to jerusalem and besieged it and the lord gave jehoiakim into the hands of nebuchadnezzar why did god give jehoiakim into the hands of nebuchadnezzar why would god let his own people be delivered into the hands of their enemies this is where the other fiery furnace, I told you this is called the fiery furnaces. This is where the other fiery furnace comes in. The other fiery furnace is not exactly a massive inferno. It's a little fire pot. It's a little fire pot that's sitting in front of King Jehoiakim's couch in his winter palace. Listen to this. Jehoiakim Jehoiakim, who was the king of Judah at this time, had been playing with political expediency 
with the Babylonians for years. He had been negotiating with them. He had been working with them. He had been sending tributes to them, tribute taxes to them. In fact, it was by their might that he was actually in power. He wasn't in power by his own strength. The Babylonians, basically, he was a, a puppet dictator for them. And he also had dealings with the Egyptians. He was working every angle. He was, the scripture tells us that Jehoiakim knew about God. He gave lip service to serving the one true God. But in fact, it was only a a disguise. Behind the scenes, he was dealing and wheeling and dealing with all of these different people. He He had no loyalty. He had no real commitment, no real dedication to God. And the scripture says that, that Jeremiah, there was a prophet named Jeremiah. And if you want to read some bone-chilling scriptures, flip back to the Old Testament and start reading through the prophets. Uh, the hair will stand up on your arm. Uh, he, he is, Jeremiah started warning Jehoiakim. And the content of Jeremiah's warnings were this. Jehoiakim, you are flirting with danger. You are flirting with all of these other groups. You are, you are messing around. You are, you, know, you are being hypocritical. You are giving lip service to God. But in the background, you are making deals with others besides God. And Jeremiah said to Jehoiakim, I want to warn you that if you keep this up, the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to take over this region. If you keep flirting with the enemy, eventually the enemy is going to tire of you. And they're going to come over and they're going to take over. And in fact, the scripture says that Jeremiah spoke this prophecy and one of his cohorts wrote it down on a scroll. Wrote it down, right? Now here's where it gets really interesting. The scroll upon which that prophecy was written was delivered to King Jehoiakim by his servants. And Jehoiakim's servants took that scroll to Jehoiakim's winter home so that he could read the prophecy of Jeremiah. And Jehoiakim, king of Judah, sitting on the couch in his palace, said, read me this passage from Jeremiah's prophecy. Let me hear it. And they start reading him the passage, and it's saying, you know, look, you better watch out. You need to straighten up. You got to stop living like a crazy person, you know. And the scripture says that Jehoiakim took out his knife and began to cut up the parchment upon which this prophecy was written and throw it into his fire pit. Bit by bit, he threw this scripture into the fire. Until Jeremiah, until Jehoiakim had thrown the entire scroll of the prophecy of Jeremiah into the fire pit. As if the truth of the words in that prophecy would dissipate like the smoke from the scroll upon which it was written. Jehoiakim, this is fascinating to me, Jehoiakim was willing to completely disregard the warnings that God had sent him through Jeremiah. He was completely willing to disregard the truth of the real threat and the real danger at the doorstep of Judah in order to just remain comfortable and do what he believed was politically expedient in his own palace. And so this story is a story of two furnaces. One furnace was built by the king of Judah and was used to destroy the truth of God's word. The other furnace was built by the king of Babylon 
and was used to demonstrate the power of God's word that he will save and rescue those who are lost and in need of his help. It's an amazing parallel between these two stories. Uh, And you may say that's all well and good. That's very poetic. That's very neat. How does it apply to me? I want to talk just for a few minutes today about how I think the truth of this story or of these stories apply to you, your life and my life today. And the first way is this. Conformity versus conscience. Never let the circumstances of your life dictate the integrity of your choices. We are all faced with circumstances in life where the politically expedient thing to do would be to make the choice that defies our conscience. Right? I, I've told many of you, you know, the story of my own faith journey. That I grew up in church. That I, my dad was a preacher. His dad was a preacher. Mom's dad was a preacher. Uncles are preachers. You know, I grew up around scripture. I grew up around people that loved God, that believed in God. And at about the age of 19, depending on how you figure it, uh, I decided I'm walking away from this. I don't want anything to do with this. Okay? Part of my departure from the faith was based in legitimate questions about the authority of Scripture and about the reality of God and, and, you know, sort of real genuine philosophical questions, right? And that's okay. If you have questions about God and you're not absolutely certain what you believe about God and you're a sincere doubter, someone who is really trying, God never condemns us for that. In fact, if you remember the guy in, in the New Testament who came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. It's all right when somebody has real genuine doubts or real genuine questions about faith. We don't, that's no problem. We, we welcome that. We invite those conversations at this church. And the whole Christian church should invite those conversations. But sometimes, at least in my case, some of my skepticism towards the scripture, some of my doubt about God was not based in a legitimate question, a legitimate intellectual misunderstanding it was based in the fact that if i believed in god that might require me to do things that i didn't want to do or more likely that might require me to not do things that i wanted to do have you ever noticed that sometimes your thoughts follow your behavior rather than your behavior following your thoughts you do something that's is just a little contrary to your conscience. And then you go, yeah, but, um, you know, actually, if you look at it this way, you know, and you end up justifying and rationalizing your own behavior. In this story, that's what I believe Jehoiakim was doing. I believe this visual image of Jehoiakim taking Jeremiah's prophecy, slicing it up with a penknife, and throwing it into the flames of his fire pit was a visual statement of Jehoiakim's willingness to throw away what he knew to be right, what he knew to be true, because if he believed it, it would require that he repent. It would require that he cut off ties with certain people. It would require that he turn away from some of his ways and that he head in a direction that he didn't want to head. He did not want to do it, and so he chose to disbelieve. And so, like I say, there's, there's a difference between a genuine, legitimate, pure questioning and this disbelief that creeps in as a result of our own 
conduct that we don't want to address or we don't want to change. Um, Jehoiakim wanted to stay in the comforts of his winter palace. He was willing to do away with, with what was right because he believed it would save his skin. The three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were willing to risk their skin in order to save their soul. They were willing to do what was ultimately the least expedient thing. Walk into a furnace that had been heated seven times hotter than it already was. I want to just show you a quick scripture, and Jesus comments on this. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? The result is that Jehoiakim was killed by his own people. He was thrown over the walls of Jerusalem. He died in infamy and disgrace. Whenever you read anything about Jehoiakim, all you read is that he was not a good guy. Right? And that was the result of him trying to save his skin and, 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 and sacrifice his conscience. Whereas you read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you tell that to somebody, they may start bouncing up and down on their bed and clapping their hands, right? Because the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego resonates with us because it says there are people, there are times, there are moments in life where we have to stand up for what we actually believe in despite the circumstances, despite the problems that it may bring us. Amen? Amen. Um, The... Let me just give you one more quick example of this. Uh, we were in Tennessee this last week, and we were driving down in a part of Tennessee um, where uh, there's modern amenities have not found their way to that part of the state. So we were driving down. We were we were in our car, and our car has one of these little GPS, you know, electronic GPS things that pops up, and. Usually, with the GPS, you can put in the coordinates of where you want to go, and then the GPS will take you there, okay? Our GPS, and I'm not sure why, but it wouldn't allow us to put in our destination, all right? It showed us where we were, but it didn't show us where we needed to go. If we are governed by the circumstances of our life, all the circumstances inform us of This is your location. But they don't inform us of, this is where you ought to turn right. This is where you ought to turn left. That's where your conscience comes in. That's where your deep commitment, abiding dedication to God comes in and leads you to where you need to go. Amen? Your circumstances only tell you where you're at. They don't tell you where you need to go. Okay, that was just my one little extra. All right. Number two, outcome versus object. The quality of your faith is defined by the identity of its object, not the immediacy of its outcome. The object of your faith is God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, God will deliver us, God will save us. That's the outcome. But, even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. Because the object of our faith is more important than the outcome of our faith. Amen? The scripture is absolutely replete with this same concept over and over. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Esther. The line that I love from Esther, she says, If I perish, I perish. But nevertheless, I'm going to do what God has called me to do to free my people. 
No matter what the outcome, I'm going to do what I've been called to do. I'm going to step out in faith and trust in God and do what he's called me to do, whether the outcome is what I want it to be or not. While I was studying for this sermon, I was thinking of uh, back in 1994, the world celebrated the ending of apartheid. Nelson Mandela was elected president of South Africa. People absolutely were thrilled and excited and, you know, and, and rightly so. But what people don't always remember is that Nelson Mandela was imprisoned in 1962. In 1962, the outcome of becoming president of South Africa was not on the horizon. In 1972, it wasn't on the horizon. In 1982, it wasn't on the horizon. For 27 years, he sat in prison because he had his faith in the object, not in the immediate outcome. If he just wanted to be released from jail, he could have recanted from his rebellion. He could have said, look, I'll do whatever I need to do. Let me pull back. I'll, I'll recant. I'll say I'm sorry. I'll pop. But sometimes the object of our faith is more important than the immediate outcome of the decisions that we make. And so I believe that, that God is telling us throughout his scripture, look at the object. Go for what's right despite the outcome. If you look at, I think Paul talks about this in Romans. In fourteen, chapter 14, verse 8, he says, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. No matter what the result is, I'm going to go with God. I'm just going to go with God. Because that's constant, that's right, that's true. And I'm going to go with God. And, and the scripture tells us that God will reward us. He will bring us peace. He will bring us comfort. He will bless us, right? That's all true. But if that's what we're worshiping, we're going to be disappointed. Because there's going to be times when we're going to be sitting and waiting for that, you know, that spark. And it might not come for a while. But we follow God despite the outcome. Amen? All right. Some hard, this is some hard stuff today. This is like, come on, you know, let's do this. Um, all right. And the third and final point is avoidance versus intimacy. The joy of our faith is the nearness of God in the midst of adversity, not the absence of adversity itself. I uh, spoke to a friend this week who is really deeply struggling in his marriage. And I don't mean familial spats. I don't mean that, you know, they're just kind of not getting along. And this is a good buddy of mine. I mean, it is a deep, deep breach in their relationship uh, to the point where at one point his wife actually issued an ultimatum and said, if you don't do this, then we're done. Uh, and, uh, you know, this has rattled him badly. He loves his wife. He, they, they have a child and loves a child. And, you know, just talking to him, you can just see the, you know, the, the pain, the pain that he's experiencing. And you can also see the confusion because I, he doesn't know how to fix it. He doesn't know how to address it. Um, he's, not, he's not a believer. He doesn't have a, a congregation around him. He doesn't have, you know, people that, other guys that he can necessarily go to on a consistent uh, basis and, and seek counsel and seek advice. I mean, you know, so he's kind of out there struggling by himself, right? 
Um, they don't have the, the coordinates. They have the circumstances. They don't have the, the destination and the GPS of their marriage, all right? Um, and I was talking to them this week, and what sort of ro- arose out of the conversation was the fact that from his perspective right now, from his perspective, it looks like the best thing to do from his perspective is to cut bait, just to cut loose and say, look, you know what, I, I don't know how to recover from all of the pain of this relationship. I don't know how to retract all of the fighting and all of the arguments and all of the really mean things that both of them have said to each other. We don't know how to get out of this, you know. So maybe the best thing to do, you know, in his mind right now is to just avoid it all. To just say, look, and, and this is a guy that, that, that did grow up in, in the faith. He does know in his heart what's right. Um, and, you know, I, I can see in his heart, in his mind, as we're talking, I can see that there's this, he's like standing right at the edge of that Jehoiakim's fire pit. And he's, he hasn't thrown the marriage license into the fire. But he's kind of standing near the fire pit with it. You know what I mean? And he's not quite sure whether just to toss it in and be done or whether to start the hard, long process of repentance and apologies and restoration and rebuilding trust and rebuilding faith. It's a long path, man. That is a long path. And we talked a lot about it, and I, and I pray that we'll talk about it more But what I want to say is this, if he will take that second path, the intimacy that he will experience with his wife will be far beyond anything that he could have ever hoped or imagined before having gone through this experience. And I don't advocate going to the brink of your marriage in order to find more intimacy. In fact, you know, that's a really bad idea. But I I do believe that if he can, rather than avoid if he can turn towards her and will start walking towards her, he will find an intimacy that he, he could not have imagined. That's what I think the Hebrew children did in the fiery furnace. You see, they were in the fiery furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar says, wait a second, there's a fourth man walking in the fiery furnace, and he looks like the son of the gods. And he's pretty close. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar was almost right. They experienced their deepest intimacy in the time of their deepest struggle. Their deepest adversity was the moment of their deepest and closest intimacy with God. And throughout the scripture, again, we see God reaching out to people during their time of struggle. Let me show you quickly Psalm 23, 4. It says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The valley, by definition, is that low spot between two mountains, right? And it's in that valley when you're going from one mountaintop through the valley to the next mountaintop. That's where you are experiencing God in the most deepest and and most intimate way. He's finding you in that valley. Some of you may be in a valley today. You may be in the fiery valley furnace today in some aspect of your life, in your relationship, in your career is going bust, in your schooling, 
or maybe you're not sure where you want to go. Maybe you're just sort of confused. Maybe there's a family member that's sort of off the rails and you don't know how to pull them back. Maybe there's a health issue that you just can't seem to you have no control over. And you're in that moment. You're in that fiery furnace. You're in that low spot today. The scripture tells us that that is where God finds us. Jehoiakim died alone, alienated, isolated from even his own people because he wouldn't go towards the adversity. He wouldn't walk towards the struggle. He wanted to get away from it. Whereas Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego walked right into the fiery furnace and therein found God. Therein experienced the closest connection that they could ever have with God. Let me give you one more scripture. Oh, let's see. I'll just give it to you. I don't have it on the, on the slide. It's uh, Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. I just want to end on this encouraging note. Wherever it is that you are in life, God is with you. In the hardest moment of your life, God is with you. When you don't know he's there, God is with you. When you don't feel him, he's with you. When you can't see him, he's with you. When the fire is hot, he's with you. In the dark of night, he's with you. No matter where you are today, no matter what issue you're going through today, know that the God of gods, the creator of the universe, the loving God of all gods is with you. He's at your side. He's available to you. He's there. He's here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We thank you for the story of the fiery furnaces. We thank you, Lord, for showing us what it means to walk in faith towards you. We, sh- we thank you, Lord, for um, teaching us that even in the moment of the greatest adversity, the greatest struggle of our life, especially in the moment of the greatest struggle in our life, that you are there that you love us, that you care for us, that you will protect us, that you will save us, that you will deliver us from the hand of our enemies. Father, we thank you today. We ask you to give us strength, give us courage, give us joy, that we can be a light to the people that we meet, that we can go out into our homes and our schools, that we can go into our workplace, that we can go out into the world and just shine the light of love, God, that we, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we can be absolutely dedicated, absolutely committed, absolutely in love with you, God. Lead us today. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.